So we are in James, and last week we finished chapter 1. And as I said earlier, James is very often regarded as the book of Proverbs for the New Testament. And one of the things that I said last time is one of the things about language is language drifts. So as cultures change over the centuries, the language changes. So if you were to go back and read the King James Bible, as it originally was written, very few of you would be able to actually understand it. The version of King James that those of you who have King James are using is actually updated. It's not the original King James. And that's because words change. And one of the things that I've said lots of times is God gave us guidance twice. The first time was when he stood at Sinai and he gave us guidance in terms of a written Torah, written in stone, which is to indicate that it doesn't change. And of course, the nice thing about a written Torah is it doesn't change. But the problem is we change. And so over the centuries, the meaning of it becomes fuzzed up, lost, changed, sometimes with good intentions, sometimes with malevolent intentions. So what God did at Pentecost is he gave us a person who will help us understand the Torah. The Torah itself doesn't change. We change. So what the Holy Spirit does is he keeps us updated, if we listen to him, so that the words of God remain meaningful to us even though we don't understand them back at Sinai. Well, it's the same thing with James. The original book of Proverbs was written well over a thousand years before James lived and wrote his letter. So one of the ways I look at the book of James is it is an update of Proverbs to match the culture of the Hebrew people at the time of Yeshua. I said all that last time, so y'all should be just chubby on top of that one. And again, one of the things I said last time is I used to be on an internet discussion group 20 years ago. We were talking about prophecy. And most of the members on the list were extremely biblically literate Sunday Christians. They knew and they liked their Bible. I mean, they really did. Devout people, not being critical of them, but I was coming at it from a messianic perspective and they were coming at it from a Sunday Christian perspective. And what they would do would be they would grab a passage of scripture and say, this proves my point. And I would then get another passage of scripture or something from Torah or something else and what about this? Well, that doesn't count anymore. It's been done away with. Jesus changed all that. So the society changes according to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And what you need is periodic updating of the scriptures by people who take them seriously to get them into a form that people can understand. That's one of the reasons we sit down in Midrash here and we thrash through this stuff because we all come from different church backgrounds. I'll give you an example. By the way, this is 
validation of something you said several weeks ago, Mike. I was talking to my barber, and I was talking to him about The Chosen. Two haircuts ago, I mentioned The Chosen, and when I went back for my latest haircut, he says, wow, that's really neat. Thanks for turning me on to it. And we were talking about it. There's a scene where you got Peter out in the boat, and Yeshua says, flip your net over on the other side for a catch. And he says, we've been fishing all night, and we haven't caught a thing, but because you say so, we'll do it. And they flip it over, and they get a tremendous catch so that the nets are broken, or breaking. And my barber says, yeah, they were using the rotten nets. I said, what? What are you talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, they had come on to shore, and they had all their nets washed out and stuff, and the ones that they had in the boat were the old rotten ones, and they went out, and they threw the old rotten ones in, and of course they broke. I said, I don't know anything about that. So I went back and looked, and there's four accounts of that incident. The synoptic gospels say that Peter was out in the boat, whereas John says that everybody had come on shore and they had washed their nets. So that's where he got that part. Same incident, four different observers. Three of them said that Peter was still out there and just threw his nets in the water. The fourth one said everybody had come back in, they cleaned up their nets, and they had to put back out. Minor difference of no importance. But none of them say anything about rotten nets or old nets. What had happened to this guy, and this is apropos of your refusal to watch things like that. For those of you who weren't listening, Mike doesn't watch things like that because he doesn't want to be confused between what's actually in Scripture and what is simply a really good dramatization. And that's a very valid point. The point is, my barber at some point had heard a preacher who got all enthusiastic about this and was probably teaching out of the book of John. And so he says, yeah, I mean, these guys washed all their nets and so forth, and they weren't going to take those brand clean nets out there. So they took these old rotten ones out there and just threw it. So this is something a preacher made up in order to dramatize his point. My barber didn't recognize that that's what had happened. And he was just listening to his preacher and, oh, okay, that was the rotten nets. And he was saying, well, in, in the TV dramatization, they didn't use the rotten nets. What rotten nets? So the point is, every generation gets this kind of stuff thrown at it. You have well-meaning preachers. You have well-meaning Sunday school teachers. You have people that are trying to make it dramatic. You have the case of this television thing, The Chosen, which I think they have done a superb job on. Really enjoy it. But I understand Mike's perspective. He's not going to watch it because he would get confused on what is actually Scripture. So we all have this, which is why it's useful to go through this stuff over and over again And it's especially useful in a setting like this, where if I say something about rotten nets, about four of you are going to jump on me, saying, where's that in Scripture? And appropriately so. So I regard James here as being an update, if you will, of a thousand-year-old book of Proverbs and book of Ecclesiastes to get it up to date for the Hebrews of that time. The other thing my dear Sunday friends would do with books like James 
is they would treat things as if they were promises of God. Pick one out of Proverbs. Like a sparrow that is flitting, like a swallow that is flying, so a curse causeless will not light. That's wisdom. That is not a promise of God. Listen to a preacher years ago, Andrew Womack, who I liked. And I'm sure I would still like him if I was listening to him anymore. I just haven't heard him in a long time. Very, very antinomian. In other words, you don't want to mess with that old law stuff. But he was on an airplane with some witch or something like that, sitting in the next seat. And she found out that he was a pastor and she was messing with him. But when she whomped a curse on him, turned around and whopped that proverb right back at her to negate the whole thing. Maybe it was useful, maybe it was not. But he was treating it as it is in Scripture, therefore it is a promise of God. And that's not what it is. It is wisdom, which is basically keep your nose clean and don't give people reason to hate you and you won't get cursed. That's the sense of the proverb. It's not like this is an absolute defense against curses, but it's not what's being said. So the Sunday church very often has problems with James because James sounds like it conflicts with Paul. So we ended up with, in verse 22 of chapter 1, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. That's human wisdom. The Sunday church regards statements like that in James as being contradictory to Paul's emphasis on grace. And we'll see some more of that when we go down through chapter 2. It'll talk about Abraham and so forth. In fact, let's go ahead and get into chapter 2. When we get to Abraham, we'll reopen this part of the discussion, and I'll show you what I mean. The other thing we did in chapter 1, by the way, is as we had these Proverbs that James was throwing out, what I did is I took you back to the book of Proverbs and showed you how Proverbs in different words has the same concepts. And that goes with the thought that perhaps this is an update of Proverbs for what was then a modern audience, modern being a thousand years after Proverbs was written. Chapter 2, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Yeshua Messiah, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Let me stop there for just a minute now. 
Where do you see something similar in either Proverbs or Ecclesiastes? And since you haven't looked it up, but I have, I will take you to it. I'm going to go to Ecclesiastes, and I'm in chapter 9, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Does that say, do not judge a book by its cover? Do not look at a poor man and decide what his value is? Isn't that similar to what's being said by James in the beginning of chapter 2? So James in the beginning of chapter 2 says, if you got two guys that come into the synagogue, one of them is well turned out and the other one is kind of shabby, you need not to make instant judgments about their value you need to treat them both well because the shabby guy may turn out to be the poor wise man of Ecclesiastes who is going to have something that is going to save you in time of distress. What I'm saying to you is James is not doing anything new. What James is doing is updating stuff for a different audience. So this idea of not judging a book by its cover goes clear back to Proverbs, but it is obviously current today. So pick it up now at verse 4, James 2.4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? By the way, this is the close of a chiasm. The beginning of that chiasm is back in chapter 1, in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. So this is sort of the bookends, if you will, of rich and poor in this letter. A couple of things here. One of the things that happens over and over and over again, especially as Yeshua is dealing with the religious authorities, we talked about it on Shabbat, for example, where you had the Pharisee and the tax collector coming into the temple. You had the woman who was washing Yeshua's feet with her tears while a Pharisee is treating him in an inhospitable manner. He invites him to dinner but doesn't give him water to wash his feet, doesn't give him oil to anoint his head, just sort of drags him in there with the intention of he's going to see what this guy's really made of. In other words, it's not true hospitality. So what Yeshua does is he takes a stripe off the Pharisee and he forgives the woman who, it only says she is a sinner. It doesn't say what her particular set of sins is. But the Pharisee and the tax collector is very much similar 
And the whole point here is God looks upon the heart and humility and doesn't look upon the outward appearance. So one of the things that Yeshua does over and over again in his dealings with the religious authority, they are of the opinion that they are God's chosen people, which they are, and they are of the opinion that they're therefore better than anybody else, which they're not. Because God has always intended to bring the world into his kingdom. And Israel's job is to be the vehicle for that to happen. And what they've done is they have gone from being a vehicle to being a bus driver. And they think that they're going to decide things. And what Yeshua is telling them, no, you're not. God's going to decide things. And the way you judge people is not the way God does. All the way down to verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Both Moses and Yeshua, when they say what is the most important law, said, love God and love your neighbor. That's consistent both New Testament and Old Testament. And so what James is saying is if you show partiality based on externalities as opposed to on behavior. So this is all in the context of external appearance. It is not in the context of behavior. So if you have somebody who is dressed shabbily and comes into your congregation and starts blaspheming and being violent and all those kinds of things, You are perfectly within your rights to put him out of there because he's a disruption. That's behavior. That's not appearance. What James is talking about here is appearance. So what he's saying is if you judge based on appearance, you are violating both Torah and Yeshua's updated stating of Torah, both of which are love God, love your neighbor. Verse 9 again. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also says, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, there's a bunch of stuff to unpack there. First off, the law of liberty. You will find that there are folks in the Sunday church, God bless them, who say that that's what Jesus said, not what Moses said. And this law of liberty somehow has supplanted the Torah. That's not correct. The Torah is the law of liberty. If you look at the Torah and compare it to every other system of law and government in the world, it is the only one that gives human liberty any place. If you look at the sequence in Exodus, you have the Hebrews who are enslaved air quotes, under sin. 
God reaches into the world and brings them out without any help from them. That's salvation by grace. God then takes them through the Red Sea. That's the baptism. God brings them up on the other side and gives them the Torah. And what the Torah is designed to do is to teach them how to behave in a world of freedom without going back under slavery. There's nothing in the Torah that is either able or designed to save. That's by the grace of God. If you look at the Exodus sequence there, it becomes very obvious. The Torah is given after salvation, not before. So the law of liberty then is the Torah. This is what teaches people who have been redeemed by God how to live in that liberty and avoid going back into slavery. And Yeshua said the same things. He said them in words and language that were appropriate to his time, much as James is doing the same thing with Proverbs. But the essence of what Yeshua said is no different than the essence of what Moses said. Second point. Let's take the Colorado Revised Statutes. It's the same thing. You can go along and you can obey all the traffic laws. You can go on and you can never steal anything. You can go along and never commit perjury. But commit one little murder. And all of your good behavior counts for nothing. Right? I'm very serious. So you can go along and obey all of these laws, never lie, never break the speed limit, always wear your mask, all that kind of stuff. Boy, but you commit one little murder and they're just all over you. You would think that all your other good behavior would count for something, and it doesn't. Well, actually, it does. It may be mitigation to your sentence, but that's a different question. James is saying the same thing. He is not saying that you can avoid obeying any of the law to avoid being guilty of any of the law. That's not what he's saying. So he's not saying avoid the law because if you screw up in one part, you're going to come after you as if you were a murderer. That's nonsense. So if I am rolling down the street and I have a rolling stop at a stop sign and a cop pulls me over and gives me a ticket, I have a ticket. I am not going to be sent to the gulag under hard labor for a ticket. You can tell the difference, and I will guarantee you God can tell the difference. And just as you can tell the difference between a rolling stop at a stop sign and murder, God can too. So can James. And as I say, you will find Sunday believers and I'm not throwing rocks at them, I'm simply using that as a descriptive term. But you will find Sunday believers who say you don't want to have anything to do with Moses because if you do have anything to do with Moses, you're going to be liable for the whole law and boy, as soon as you spit on the sidewalk, you're going to hell. I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating, but I'm very serious. That's not what either Moses or James says. What they both are saying is, yeah, there are different degrees of disobedience, it's all the law, if you will, but the idea that 
You want to ignore God's advice to his people on how to live well in freedom because you're afraid of what's going to happen if you spit on the sidewalk is ignorance going to seed. Moses had the same problem. He killed the Egyptian overseer and the fact that he was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter didn't count for anything. And from Egypt's perspective, rightly so. Comment was, and it bears a little discussion here, two groups of people. I've been talking about Sunday Christians who believe they are under grace and not under law. That's the, that's the distinction I've made. And I believe that the problem there is they really don't understand what the law is for and what it's designed to do. And so they've become confused and they believe that Jews are of the opinion that salvation comes through obedience to the law. And that is not the case for either Jews or biblical Hebrews. Nobody believes that. So there's been a miscommunication, misunderstanding, misteaching about what the law actually is that has caused much of the Sunday church to be hostile to it. That's what I've been talking about. You're now talking about the general society who is hostile to the Bible because they regard the Bible as putting a crimp on the fun that they want to have. And the idea being if, well, if we're all consenting adults, what difference does it make? And there's actually an answer to that as well. There are several kinds of laws. Um, and the rabbis define these. There are what are called ceremonial laws. You know, the laws about how you handle sacrifices and so forth. There are laws that you can understand. So when God says, honor your father and your mother and things will go well, you say, okay, I can figure that one out. Because it's natural to love your parents. It's natural to want to care for your parents and so forth. And something pathological has to happen to interrupt that. So when you read honor your father and your mother, you can understand that. That makes a lot of sense. And then there are laws that you wouldn't be able to figure out by yourself and you only obey them because God said so. And of course, the poster child for that is the red heifer. That's the weirdest thing in the entire Bible. If you're clean and you touch the ashes of the red heifer, you become contaminated. But if you're contaminated and you get sprayed with the ashes of the red heifer, you become clean. I mean, it's just weird. There are laws about sexual purity, some of which are understandable, some of which are not quite so understandable. So take, for example, the law about not marrying two sisters. Well, we got a case study with Jacob back there, and it shows what happens when you do that. Similarly, you've got laws about not being able to marry your own sister. And what we have discovered years later is that close intermarriage reinforces genetic defects. God knew that before we did. So he set the law up saying, don't marry your sister, regardless of whether she's your mother's daughter or your father's daughter. Don't marry her. Doesn't say why, just says don't. And as I say, modern genetics now understands why it's a bad idea. Same thing goes for laws against what we would call sexual deviancy. Animals, same sex, whatever. Those are laws that people who want to do that stuff regard as victimless crimes. God knows us. 
And what he knows is if that stuff gets rampant and loose in your society, your society is going to wind up pretty much where we are now. It's going to be a process, and you're going to have militant sexual deviance intent on forcing other people to join in their perversions, and they are going to wind up corrupting your whole society. So God, from his perspective, knows what the end game is of that. And so he says, don't do that. Because I know where it's going to lead. Those people who want to do that kind of stuff don't see where it leads as being a particular problem. So they say, well, I mean, the Bible is just old-fashioned. And now we've got people who insist that you enter into their insanity used to be regarded if you started chopping body parts off of yourself that was a sign of insanity now it's celebrated and furthermore there was a case in texas where you had a divorce and mother had custody of an 11 year old boy mother hated father so mother with the court's approval started transitioning 11 or 12 year old boy into a girl my reading of that is mother hates father and she is castrating his son that's my reading of that i mean now the society and the judges and all that kind of stuff say, oh if the kid wants to do that, that's, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that becomes rampant in your society when deviance gets loose. And God knows that. And so God says, don't even start. Comment was that if you try and explain why it's damaging, you'll get a poster child example of somebody who's been in a homosexual relationship for 30 years and they're perfectly... And by the way, there have always been people like that. So the way it used to be described is somebody was somebody's longtime companion. And Eleanor Roosevelt, for example, she had some gal that was her secretary that lived with her all of her life. You You had two confirmed bachelors that had lived together all their life. But the point is, they called themselves confirmed bachelors. They didn't call themselves a homosexual couple, even though everybody knew or suspected what was going on. And the difference is, you may suspect that the two bachelors living together are that way, but they're not out in your face. And they're not recruiting. That has always been the case. You know, those things have always existed. The other thing is we all have really, really powerful justifiers. And a justifier works on your appetite. So you have an appetite for something, regardless of what it is, and your justifier goes to work double speed to figure out why it's actually a good idea for you to do or have the thing that you want. We all do that. You're on a diet. And there's chocolate cake. Chocolate cake at lunch. 
I'm on a diet. Well, but it's Shabbat. And, well, but one piece of chocolate cake won't make any difference. Well, it's okay because I'll skip supper. Everybody goes through that. And it's the same with sexual appetites. So, moving right along. So I'm down to verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And Yeshua says exactly the same thing. The prophets say exactly the same thing. And the way I have described it, which is not unique with me, is God is just. And God is also merciful. And his mercy is just ever so slightly stronger than his justice, which is the only reason we survive. And so God is able to grant us mercy even when justice would forbid it. And what James is saying here is as you are dealing with people, and remember this is all back in the context of a rich man and a poor man who come into the synagogue. That's how we started this vignette out. And he's saying, you look at the rich man and you say, give him a good place. You look at the poor man and you say, you stand over there in the corner. And we come down to this point, which is judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. The parable of the unforgiving servant in the gospel. And it's all over the place. The point is, not to neglect justice because God in other places tell us to establish justice. In fact, that's uh, the Micah passage. What does God require of you? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So justice and mercy are both qualities that are important. But mercy ought to be ever so slightly stronger than justice which doesn't mean justice doesn't get executed because very often it has to be. And just like God at some point finally has it right up to here and they go into exile. So it isn't the case that justice has been turned off. It's the case that mercy is the first thing he looks for until mercy finally becomes no longer appropriate. And then justice kicks in. They're both attributes of God, and they should both be attributes of you in appropriate measure. Comment wasn't they both met in perfect harmony on the cross? Yeah, I agree. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you always says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Couldn't have said it better myself, which is why he's in the Bible and I'm not. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Stop there for a minute. One of the things that is not correct is the idea that you can believe in your heart and all this kind of stuff, but not change your behavior, and somehow grace will make it all better. If your behavior doesn't follow, your faith is not genuine, regardless of what you happen to think. And what James is saying here is, show me your faith without works. And the air quote parentheses here is it can't be done. You can't show faith without it moving through you and coming out of your hands and your mouth. You don't speak words of faith, you don't do things in accordance with faith, your faith is dead. And dead faith is not saving faith. The idea is faith should move you to action. And what James is saying is, if it never does, it isn't real. Furthermore, you believe that God is one. In other words, people will say, well, if you believe in God, he'll take the rest, right? And what James is saying is, yeah, the demons believe in God. But nobody is suggesting that the demons are going to be saved simply because they believe in God. That's what he's saying. So the fact that you believe in God is a good first step. But that step needs to be translated into action before it becomes real. That's his argument right there. That's what he's saying. And you will find people that say, yeah, I believe in God. So what makes you then different from the demons? Because so do they. And... If there's no action connected to your belief, you may be better behaved than a demon, don't get me wrong, but it isn't enough. That's what James is saying. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. If you remember the order in the Torah, back in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham. And it says there, he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's where it says. The binding of Isaac is in Genesis 22, but counting faith for righteousness is written in Genesis 15. And so what James is saying is the counting to him for righteousness was cemented when Abraham's faith caused him to act in accordance with what God asked of him. And had he not done that, then Moses would not have written hundreds of years later, back in Genesis 15, that his faith was counted to him for righteousness. The comment was that Abraham demonstrated his faith on a number of occasions. Yes, I would agree. The poster child that James is using here is, of course, the binding of Isaac. By leaving Ur, 
he also put his faith into action. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And again, Rahab had heard the stories of the Exodus. And based on her hearing of the stories of the Exodus, she believed that God was able to give the land to Israel as he had promised. And based on that belief, she decided, I am going to be on Israel's side here as opposed to being on the side of the Canaanites. She then acted on that by concealing the spies and then sending them out by another way and lying to the mayor of the city saying that they had gone out earlier. So all of that was by way of putting her faith into action. And had she not done that, she would not have gotten the scarlet cord, the crimson thread, to tie onto her window, and she would have perished with everybody else. <laughs> ¶¶ 